Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Thanks to Harvest Host for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Harvest Host provides a cost-free opportunity for small businesses and farms to increase revenue simply by inviting self-contained RV members to stay one night on their property. In return, members patronize or donate to the business. Well-established hosts are reporting on an average of 15000 in annual additional revenue. For more information on how you can become a host or a member, contact Harvest Hosts today at harvesthosts.com. Hey, Thriving Farmers. In this podcast, we are airing one of our value-added summit talks from fall of 2022. The 37-plus speakers who joined us shared incredible expertise on how you can make more money while providing value to your family and community. We want to share a few of them with you here on the Thriving Farmer podcast. Want to gain access to all 37 presentations and trainings? Head to farmsummits.com to learn more. In this session of the Thriving Farmer Summit Value Added, we're joined by Joel Salatin. Joel co-owns with his family, Polyface Farm in Swoop, Virginia. Featured in the New York Times bestseller, Omnivore's Dilemma, and the award-winning documentary, Food Inc., the farm services more than 5,000 families, 50 restaurants, 10 retail outlets, and a farmer's market with salad bar beef, piggerator pork, pastured poultry, and forestry products. When he's not on the road speaking, he's at home on the farm, keeping the calluses on his hands and dirt under his fingernails, mentoring young people, inspiring visitors, and promoting local regenerative food and farming systems. Today, we'll be talking with Joel about why everyone needs to be value-adding to add income for food and finance security. Welcome to the summit, Joel. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Joel, what to you is value added? Well, value added, you know, can go both above and, and below the point of production. You know, D. Howard Doan wrote Vertical Diversification in 1950 and brought this idea to the world that you can diversify below the point of production, i.e. Uh, your own genetics, your own seed stock, saving your seeds, growing your own fertilizer, making your own compost. That's <laughs> below the point of production. And then above the point of production, of course, is turning it into a higher and higher value for the retail dollar. In other words, instead of uh, selling corn, you sell a uh, cornmeal, and then you maybe you turn the cornmeal into cornmeal muffins, and so so you you diversify that way. And so for for me, value adding can go both directions. It can go either 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 above the point of production or below the point of production. You, you can add value either direction. Yeah, and I think so many folks are just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can value add because. Value added doesn't mean that it's more work. Sometimes just thinking about something in a new way. Absolutely. I remember well the year that we added uh, parts and pieces to our chicken. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we were like that proverbial calf with all these four legs locked up. You know, you're trying to pull him across the corral. Yeah. And you can't do it. And that's why we, no, we don't want to, we don't want to cut chicken. You know, I was like uh, green eggs and ham. I do not want to cut it in the, in the house. I do not want to cut it in the shed. I do not want to cut it for anybody. You know, I will not cut up chicken. And, uh, and, and when we, when we finally did the first year we offered it, we made an extra $20,000 without growing another chicken. And so the, the actual labor requirement to get that $20,000 extra was half the time to get $20,000 selling chickens. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, it's thinking differently is what it comes down to a lot of the times. And I think you said something else right there is, is giving the customers what they want. Yeah. Most of our value adding is not stuff that we sit around and, you know, do focus groups and, and, and come up with. It's actually listening to customers. What are you interested in? What do you wish you had? Because the quickest way to increase income is to turn a $100 customer into a $200 customer. The hard part in marketing is getting, you know, hurried, harried, frenzied, frantic uh, people to stop at your venue, whether your venue is a website, a farmer's market stand, an on-farm sale venue. The hard part is getting a person to stop and take a look at you. Once they buy, they quickly are looking for leveraging their stop. That's why one-stop shops like Walmart, where you can go and get your oil changed and diapers and bananas all at the same place. Yeah. Uh, that's why that works uh, is so folks can, can get that one-stop shop. So uh, if we can offer, look, um, as farmers, we want our customers to be totally dependent on us. We, we want them to think, man, if you go out of business, I'm going to die. You know, our family's yeah. not going to have anything to eat. We want that. We want that persona uh, in our customer base. And so the hard part is getting that customer initially. And once you have that person, well, what else can I get here? That's their next question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked about value added, what it is and why it's made such a big difference. But let's talk a little bit about these farmers who maybe they're, they're just a corn and grain farm, or maybe they are, as you said, said raising birds and they're just not sure they want to start cutting up. Why do we need to be doing this in addition to what we've already just discussed? To me, one of the biggest whys, and there, there are lots of them, but uh, one of the biggest ones that I think that I think people can get their heads around very quickly is so you, so you get the retail dollar, that, so there's a dollar. Well, that dollar is, is divided into basically four, four components. Production, processing, marketing, and distribution, and different commodities, you know, some things go, are different ratios. Beef returns probably the highest to the farmer. Uh, wheat probably returns the smallest to the farmer. So anyway, so it, it's something, but, but, but for sake of discussion, let's just assume that production, processing, marketing, and distribution uh, each get roughly a quarter of that retail dollar. Yep. Well, as a farmer, if you know if you're not getting any processing distribution or marketing in uh, from that dollar you're only being able to get a quarter of that actual value and the production leg of if you think about a stool that production leg is the one that's subject to the farmer's four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Alan Nation used to always talk about this my mentor he, he uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for the farmer or weather, price, pestilence, and disease. That's what every farmer leans up yeah. against his pickup truck and complains about. But when you move your income dollars over into those middleman areas, processing, marketing, and distribution, the grasshoppers don't eat the tires on your delivery truck. The drought doesn't stop the internet connection you have with your customers. Fungus doesn't grow on your stainless steel processing table. As a farmer, the more dollars I can take in from processing and, and marketing and distribution, those dollars become fairly insulated from mm -hmm. weather, price, pestilence, and disease. That's a big deal. And to me, that's that's the single biggest why to proceed with this. It stabilizes 
it yeah. stabilizes yeah. your farm income and spreads you across less risky components of the food system. Yeah, it's spreading that risk. It's uh, yeah. Now, I think another point to make just to that point is farmers inherently work really hard. They're out there just producing, producing, producing. But if they can spread that those into other aspects, that's going to save their bodies, save their knees, save their backs, give them a little bit of variety in their job instead of just growing production. Well, sure. I relish being outside. But I also relish being outside, sweating, and then coming in for two hours and doing desk work, yes. uh, you know, uh, uh, talking with customers. And so I think if you can just think of this as, as I'm trading this income component for that income component, and often the hardcore production component is the least return to labor, if I can substitute some less strenuous or exactly like you said, use some different muscles, uh, use some different things in this other, then it not only makes more variety in my life, but it also, you know, adds to adds to my physical, I'm not pushing myself right on up to the end every every day. Uh-huh. You know, one other thing I think is important to understand here is that while farming certainly takes intellectual capacity, and I don't want to diminish that one little bit, I'll tell you, matching wits with urban customers that really takes some intellectual capacity. And so I want to create whatever farming opportunities where they're actually attractive to our best and brightest. I don't want our farmers to be inhabited by people who never want to match wits with the urban sector because it's just too complicated. No, I want people on our farms who are savvy enough intellectually and and, uh, prosaically to be able to match wits with our urban counterparts because we need them to be on our team. Yeah, yeah. I think what you're speaking to there is the brain drain that's happened over the last century century from the farm. And you're right. The best and brightest are sitting in the ivory towers, the 32nd floor marketing, and the farmer is just growing more crops and operating at a sub-fraction of a percent of a a percentage point for their their profit. Yeah, that's right. And doing the, the highest risk, I mean, think about the founding of this country. I mean, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, you know, all these people were, I mean, we uh, were, were the intellectual uh, powers of their day, and they were farmers. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, Jefferson had the idea of the, the intellectual yeoman farmer uh, nation. Mm-hmm. I think that, that value adding, you know, you've got to come up with graphics, you've got to come up with social media buzz, you've got to come up with packaging and deal with things that just keeping the chickens watered and the tomatoes trellised, uh, while that certainly is, uh, again, I don't want to be any condescending at all, but there's another skill set, another thing that I think can be challenging enough and attracting enough to make it exciting for, for our best and brightest. Well, I think you're doing, especially one of the reasons we farm is families. We want to be around our kids all day, and that's great. They're following us out, doing this, that, and the other. But also, if we're looking to scale our operation and maybe bring those kids onto the farm, there also needs to be an opportunity that they can have their own thing. And maybe one of them does want to really focus on that marketing. Another one loves just growing the crop in the field. And again, being the powerhouse of all of them together can really make the, the operation grow. Well, sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of child entrepreneurship. 
And uh, I, I, you know, I started my chickens when I was 10 years old and our own kids had, Daniel had his uh, rabbits and Rachel had her baking business. And then our grandkids have had their ducks and lambs and exotic chickens. And I think that there's a magic between like eight and 10 to do an entrepreneurial thing. Well, let me tell you, doing an entrepreneurial thing as an eight to 10 year old is a lot easier if the farm environment is people centric and, and, and marketing centric. If there are people coming out anyway to buy whatever the farm is selling, it's very easy for a child to slip in, uh, slip in a side hustle, uh, a side gig, a complimentary entrepreneurial business into that because customers are already there. Yeah. And, yeah. But 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 if if all you're doing is going to the grain elevator or the sale barn or the packing house, where is that customer base? going to start where even a child can even develop this entrepreneurial spirit. So yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in child entrepreneurship. And one of the best catalysts is to already be a people-centric, people-oriented, marketing-oriented farm to create that flow of people that are looking for additional products. Yeah. Now, I think farmers for so long have resisted this. And either they're resisting it because they feel like they just don't have what it takes to market, or they just feel like, you know, it's easier just to show up at that, to get that slip at the grain elevator. What mindset shifts do you feel like we have to have in order for us to be making this change in our businesses and adding it? I mean, maybe it's someone on a half acre in an urban environment who really wants to make this change. And I mean, it also swings to the person with 5,000 acres of corn and wheat. Yeah, sure. So a couple of things. You're exactly right. The antipathy in orthodox farming to this is is palpable, I think, generally because being an extroverted, um, extroverted salesman doesn't come on the farmers. <laughs> Most farmers don't like people. You know? <laughs> they, they have a better relationship with their plants and animals than with people. I've been known to hide in a cooler when someone showed up. Now it was a very specific person that showed up, but I do have to I have to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I totally get it. You know, the the the, the thing about plants and animals and and the tractor is that, that yeah they don't talk back and and they're usually happy to see you. So I get that. The other thing is that farmers. So you're talking about a mind shift. You know, what does it take to to move this? And I think one of the things I could actually help to the discussion is to realize as a, as a farmer, when we talk about value adding and, and, and direct marketing, often the best of that that happens is actually not the farmer doing it himself or herself. It's actually a partner, a commission-based sales partner that actually makes those calls. There's something, because farmers, you know, we're, we're a pretty uh, a laid back lot. We don't want to appear mercenary, you know. I'm out. Hey, buy my chicken. You know, it sounds like something at the circus, you know. And, yeah. and we're we're a pretty we're a pretty deprecating lot. I mean, think about the last time you went to a to a social function and a guy came up and met you and he shook your hand. And he said, "Hi, I'm I, I'm Matt," and I, you know, and he puts his head way down almost apologetically and says, "I'm I'm just a heart surgeon." You know, I'm just a heart yeah. surgeon. I mean, you know. Uh, but but that's what we do as farmers, right? I'm just a farmer. And so we, we're kind of a self-deprecating lot. And so we tend, we, we don't want to view ourselves as this mercenary, you know, circus hawker out here. And the other thing is that we have been, uh, American farmers especially, have been sold this thing that we're responsible for the world's food system. You know, if we don't fill that grain elevator with bushels of something, 
children are going to die in Thailand and Bangladesh because we didn't fulfill our obligation to feed the world. Well, let me tell you something. The world can feed itself very well. Nobody's going hungry in the world because there's not enough food. The wonderful thing about COVID was that COVID emptied the store shelves. And for the first time, we realized, whoa, maybe the U.S. could be at risk as well. Mm -hmm. And this started a conversation, which is ongoing now, you know, about supply chains and, and, and famine and food and all this stuff. And so you've got to get over that guilt burden on your back that I'm responsible for the world. No, you are responsible to stay in business mm -hmm. and to caretake your plot of God's creation. If you take care of your plot of God's creation and stay in business, that will be success. And you know what? Bangladesh can feed itself. Thailand can feed itself. Kenya can feed itself. You know, I was just in South Africa. You know, these places around the world, they, they are resource rich and they don't need uh, American dumping in their systems to just, that's another topic. Yes. But, but <laughs> another topic, but, but, but you, you get, you get my point that our responsibility is to caretake our plot of earth and to be financially functional so that yeah. we survive. And there's an interest there in the family to to yeah. So what you're giving people is permission to stop feeling guilty. Yes, absolutely. I hereby free you from the guilt of, of, of having to feed the world and also the self-deprecating notion that you're just a farmer. No, this is the most sacred, noble vocation on the planet. It's the first and foremost one, I would suggest. Now, I'm glad people know how to make tractors. I'm glad, you know, people, all right, I, I, yes. I'm all about that. But at the end of the day, if you know how to grow something, you know, you're probably foundational to society. Mm. And so accept that mantle with uh, honor and dignity and go get a suit and tie so you can go to town and look like somebody. Yeah. I think another mindset shift there, too, is so we one of the stories we we tell is um, we're we grow comfrey and we grow it for the roots because people like to buy the roots and you sell little nuggets of the roots for people to put in their backyard. Well, right. the leaves are there too, and the leaves are incredibly medicinal. So we started drying it, but then we looked at what the value was on the dried market. And again, we were just like, okay, you know, we can sell this to people. But what we realized is it was seven dollars a pound, and for a dried leaf, and that was two bushels of comfrey leaves. And so, you know, we were like losing money on it because the time we harvested, you put it in the dryer and all of that. But you take that same pound and you turn it into a little salve. And I've actually got one of the salves right here. You know, this is like a two inch round salve and that's worth $15 on the open market. And yeah. literally you take that one pound and you turn it into over $800 of product. Yeah. And on one aspect, I think people feel guilty for that. But I think the other aspect of this is that they need to realize that they're doing a service to someone that doesn't want to spend the time and effort and energy or can't um, and is just a very busy person at home. Well, yeah, you know, again, farmers, farmers, because, because I think of this obligatory mindset that the USDA has foisted upon the American farmer, we're all keyed up about price. And so there's a whole science to price pointing. and one of the one of the axioms of price pointing is if 10% of your customers aren't complaining about price you're not you're not high enough you're not leaving enough on the table now another axiom is that there is no place in your marketing in which you would normally use the word price that you couldn't substitute the word investment 
Mm-hmm. And so imagine this, uh, instead of having a price list, have an investment list. Boy, uh-huh. that, that, that changes it. Somebody says, what's the price of that? Well, your ma'am, your investment will be, <laughs> well, yes. that, that changes the message a little bit, doesn't it? And, yeah. and we as farmers, look, Michael, if you drill down really philosophically, you realize that you get the respect that you have for yourself. And unfortunately, most farmers have not been told to respect themselves, have not been given liberty to respect themselves. And so hence, they don't walk around as if they deserve respect. And so I've got to be the lowest priced or the, you know, I can't do anything different. One one of the things that happens when when you're direct marketing, value adding is that you are constantly looking for differentiated product. You don't want to be commodity. You don't want to be homogeneous. You want to be different. And the effort, the care, that it takes to be different demands a respectful price, this a respectful investment. Just like we wouldn't expect a Ferrari to sell for the same amount of money as a as a Subaru Forester. Okay. Right. And so we recognize that in all sorts of areas of life, somehow in food and farming and fiber, uh, you know, one one board's supposed to be the same price as another one. And or, or one, you know, one hamburger, whatever. And that's simply not the case. So you got to get over that condescending price, you know, mentality and realize the market sets price, the market sets what that value is not. And just because you wouldn't go buy it doesn't mean somebody else won't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think because farmers are so frugal, they get that caught up in that aspect of, well, I would never buy this. So why would somebody else do this? Oh, for sure. Let me tell you, you don't have to travel very much to realize there is money out there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day and, um, you know, every I think it's on Friday. They have the real estate section, that special real estate section in the back. And it's it, the title of it is mansions, you know, and it's it, it's all these uh, these very expensive. And, and every week, every week, there are hundreds of these things. And you realize Man, there is so much money out in the system. So look, you can have fun with this. You can say, look, I, you know, I'm running my own wealth redistribution process here. You know, the government redistributes wealth all the time. Why can't I uh, jump in on redistributing wealth? You know, I mean, Teresa and I talk about this. Uh, you know, if, if we lived in town, what would you spend your money on? I mean, if you can't buy tractors and greenhouses and 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 uh, polypipe, polypipe, pitchforks, all that stuff, what in the world do you spend your money on? And and so listen to Dave Ramsey. I mean, I'm I'm constantly Dave Ramsey. You know, the, the guy calls you. He says, "Well, we just we just can't make it. What's your income? Hundred fifty thousand dollars a year." And, and you know they can't make it. This happens every day. Just listen to Dave Ramsey. You know, and and, and you'll hear these. And so uh, so there's plenty of money out there, and we can offer a great service or product that can meet the needs of somebody. It's all about serving and do it with a respectful investment margin. That 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 res- that respects the care and the love and 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 what what we're putting into it. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about some of the value added that you've done because you've been quite innovative over the years as you've done different things and sometimes you're doing something, sometimes you stop, but you're always thinking outside the box on you know where can we bring value from our farm. Yeah, well, you know we uh, we started of course direct marketing day one, so. That is one. That's one way to add value. Just, just you know, eggs. Uh, sure, you you can uh, you can hard boil them and and sell uh, egg salad. All right, so that's a value added. 
but it's also value added to be able to get the retail dollar. Just the flat retail dollar is yeah. also a so that you know that's where we cut our teeth was in was in the retail dollar. But then what happened? I mean, we started a long, long time ago, and over the years, we have seen the the convenience mindset of the American consumer just continue to escalate. Forty years ago, we thought that by now the La Leche League and Lamas and, and all that kind of thing would gradually morph into where people wanted to be in their kitchens. But yeah. in fact, what they really want is uh, organic hot pockets. <laughs> and so so we, we were wrong in where we thought that trajectory was going to go. When in, in fact, Las Vegas has gotten bigger. The NFL has gotten bigger. The Kardashians have gotten bigger. And convenience is the name of the game. As we saw this, then, you know, one of the biggest, I already mentioned it was, was uh, going to, to parts and pieces on chicken. I mean, that was, that yeah. was a major, that was a major thing that we did. One of the other uh, really big, best things we did was going to a standard, uh, like, like volume, uh, a, a encouraging volume purchases. So one of the parts of value adding the greatest value you can be to your customer is to be their coach, their education coach, because our customers, Michael, they are so clueless about food, yeah. farming, culinary arts, all these things. They're, they're clueless. I mean, I have customers ask me, how, how do you make a hamburger? You know, I yeah. mean, I'm, yeah. Okay. So we had a little class the other day that someone didn't know how to cut up an onion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And so here, here's, Alan Nash used to tell me, he said, this is why entrepreneurs gradually begin to hate their customers is because we entrepreneurs, we start, we start at level A and we're growing, we're learning, we're reading, we're going to classes, we're, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're joining, you know, the, the thriving farmer, whatever, you know, and we're, we're continuing education and we're growing. But every day the phone rings and there's a person that this is their first time they ever thought about this product. And they're asking the most simple little questions. And, and we have to smile and act like that's the first time I've ever been asked that question because we, we need to bring them along. The greatest value we can be to our customers is to be their leaders, their, their vetting, their product vetting, uh, yes, their, yes. their coach yeah. to lead them along. And so one of the best uh, value-added things that we did one year and, and we still do it now. I mean, you, you know, you start it and if it works, you know, you yeah. <laughs> with it, was to, to realize that from a food security standpoint, our folks needed to be getting a uh, volume and we'd love to sell quarters of beef and half a hog and that sort of thing. But they were, they were, we always offered it as a custom, you know, uh, they had to call the butcher, tell them how they wanted to cut up. Well, we found out that, that that was intimidating and butchers tend to not have very good people skills because they got to come in, answer the phone, wipe their hands off, you know, and yeah, what do you want? Well, uh, how, how thick do you want your ribeye steaks? Well, I don't know how thick are ribeyes, you know, and the butcher gets short with them and this yeah. stupid urban customer, you know, ah, and so we, we went to four standard, standard like beef quarters. You know, one, one was at the top end, it was completely boneless. At the bottom end, it was bony and stew stew cubes. Yeah. Itemized them. And that almost tripled our sales huh. simply, simply by eliminating the call to the butcher and offering four standard options, A, B, C, D, as opposed to, if you heard the book, Paradox, Paradox of Choice, and you can go into uh, paralysis with too much choice. And so 
by reducing choice, simplifying it. Now all they say is, well, I want a, you know, I want a slow cooker's dream. I, I, I want a, you know, country club uh, gourmet. And boy, that that was one of the simplest. So sometimes value adding is about is about simplification, using your knowledge to make to make packages uh, uh, packages that take decision making out of your customer's mind. And so that was a, you know, that was a really good one. I mean, certainly one of the, uh, one of the, another, one of the really, really early ones that turned out great was hot dogs. You know, we were having trouble with uh, pork fat, we do with pork fat and with, with salvaged beef, you know, cold cows, things like that. And so uh, we worked, we collaborated with a, with a fella that got us to Pennsylvania and, and, and into a hot dog deal. And yeah. boy, we sell, we sell lots and lots of yes. hot dogs. I have now. eaten a lot of your hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the ultimate lunch. He just. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. You don't even have to cook it. You know, you can just, just eat it. And then now uh, we've, we've uh, got these snack sticks, these pork sticks and beef sticks that we have done. They're again, working, working with another fellow that, that was already doing it. Can we piggyback on your HACCP plans, your licensing, your compliance codes, the, the processing facility? So we ship pallet loads out there, bring them back in little one ounce sticks. Man, oh man, do we sell those? And they're, they're shelf stable, they don't yeah. need refrigeration. You can stick them in a Jiffy mailer and mail them all over the country. That's been a, a big positive. And then, you know, one of our one of our latest ones now is this whole pet food thing. Uh, you know, Michael, a lot of people are more interested in nutrition for their pets than for their own kids. And yeah. so we're now we're now hooked up with uh, farmhounds down in Atlanta, and we ship them pallets of chicken necks and heads and turkey feet and stuff. They turn them into they turn them into uh, uh, you know pet treats, and they buy it from us. And then we bring it back, mark it up 30%, sell it to our customers. And the beautiful thing is they maintain, uh, they maintain provenance. So our packages are product of polyphase. Uh -huh. so, so their their marketing, their marketing yeah. plan is they're tapping into the customer base that direct market farmers already have, rather than trying to penetrate Kroger's and 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 Costco and stuff, they're just tapping into the customer base that we already have, that we have as a as a tribe. And then the final, and then one of the final things I'll just mention: we we collaborate with other farmers as well, and that can be a value add. You know, Alan Nation used to always tell me he says the guy that makes the sale owns the customer, and so we collaborate with about a dozen uh, artisan, you know, food and fiber crafters in the area. We're, we've now hooked up with a with a grass based uh, A two A two dairy, and yep. we sell we sell their milk and cheese and you know uh, an apple orchard that does a, a wonderful cold pressed apple juice you know it has about an inch of inch of sediment in the bottom yeah. and uh, we sell that so the point is that we're gradually becoming that one stop shop our customers can buy more and more variety you know cheese to to cosmetics to maple syrup to honey to apple juice i mean kombucha we now have kombucha on tap in the farm store yeah the folks that were that 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 are that we're working with that make that great kombucha we're their number one outlet now they're in a, they're in numerous grocery stores in the area wow. but but they say we're their number one outlet why because everyone that walks through our our door knows kombucha at, at kroger yeah. not one in 200 people even knows what kombucha is and Correct. so we're a very we're a very targeted dedicated tribe to do this kind of you know more broad scale um collaborative approach yeah 
Joining me is Sash from Harvest Hosts. Harvest Host connects over 225,000 self-contained RVers to small businesses such as farms just like yours. Sash, tell us a little bit about some of the unique ways that farms profit from the RVers that visit their farms. Yeah, so we have over 225,000 members that are all self-contained RVers. They get to come spend the night on your farm, but what's up to you is what you can offer them. So maybe that's just a produce stand or something simple as an honor box, or you have a square system that they can purchase products. Maybe you have a tip jars. If you're a working farm, you don't have products to sell. We do um, encourage donations or a tip jar. Maybe you have different classes or tours that you can offer to allow the members to come check out more about what you do on the farm. Um, a really unique one that we've seen some of our hosts do are adoption programs with your animals. So say $50 and this feeds an animal for a month or $250 and you get to have this animal as your adopted animal for the year. And that goes to helping shear them and feed them and, and take care of them for the year. So there's lots of ways you can get unique and our members are definitely looking for unique. So we welcome all of the ideas, whether it's goat yoga or just walking animals or produce for sale uh, in your market. Uh, all of that is great. And our members are super excited to get out there and spend money and support you. Tell us a little bit about sawdust alpacas. Yeah. So we had the privilege to actually adopt an alpaca. Um, his name is, we named him Harvey with RV in the middle. <laughs> so he's our little adoptee that we got out of sawdust alpacas in Nevada. And um, we spent the adoption fee to be able to call him hours for the year. We got We'll get some of his shearings. We get a product made from him. So it's really awesome to see uh, one of our hosts who offers that and make it come to life for us. Very cool. Harvest Host connects over 225,000 self-contained RVers to a network of thousands of small businesses, which are hosts. Hosts simply offer RVers a one-night stay on their property, and in return, RVers patronize the business while spending the night. Visit www.harvesthosts.com forward slash hosts to learn more and become a host today. All right, so we've covered a lot of the food innovation, the food value adding. Now you do a tremendous amount of, I guess I would call it my agritainment side of things too with the farm. Oh yeah, oh my. Well, that's that's another whole <laughs> that's another whole dimension. But but it, it is definitely now uh, a huge huge enterprise for us. And the beauty is agritainment. You don't have to buy tractors and feed and and uh, yes. do all that other yeah. stuff. And so, you know, this this really started, I would say, our first, you know, toe in the water on this was, uh, goodness, uh, 20 years ago. Well, you know, we, we did the big open houses things for, yes. for years. But then years ago, you know, um, so I'm the extrovert, Teresa's the introvert, and we're having all these visitors come. And we're both frustrated because I can't get any work done because I'm talking to everybody. She can't get any work done because she doesn't want to go outside. And so we said, how do we solve this? So we started the lunatic tour. And this is uh, eight or nine scheduled farm tours during the summer. When we started this, we did it for free. But what happened was people would sign up for the seats. We'd sell out. And then and then they wouldn't show up because they didn't have any skin in the game. Yeah. But, the, but the idea was to funnel people in so that now I can feel good about just waving and saying hi from, you know, hundred yards away. If you want to talk to me, come on a tour day. I mean, that's our, that's our dedicated day for you. Yeah. And for Teresa, she knows, okay, on this day, there's going to be a ton of people here and I'm going to do housework that day, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so you can kind of, you can kind of coordinate uh, that. And it, and it really did, it really did solve a lot of that 
So the next year we, we added a little $10 price fee that got people to honor their, uh, honor their RSVP. We're, we're now here. We are 20 years later, we're at 25 bucks. And this is, you know, this is a, this is a $30,000, um, you know, enterprise for us that just takes, you know, a few days, a summer, you know, ha- ha- which it's, it's a two and a half hour tour on hay yeah. wagons, you know, didn't take any more equipment. We already had the hay wagons. We already had the tractors real, really, really simple. So, we do that. We do the polyface intensive discovery seminars. Those are very liked and always fill up. Uh, but the the big the biggest latest one, I don't know if you've even seen this, is the Lunatic Learning Center. So, so in in 2020, you remember yeah. 2020? Who doesn't, Joel? We all want to. We all want to like. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like it's like back. You know, let it go out of memory. All right. So in the fall of 2020, Weston A. Price Foundation was having their lo- their uh, their big annual uh, conference in Atlanta. And about three weeks before, the conference center called and said, hey, we can book out the, the center for like three months. We're going to kick you out, pay our penalty fee to you, and, you know, sayonara. And so Weston A. Price, they're all bummed, you know. And, and so they call me up and say, hey, you know, could we, could we come down and just do something at your place? Just our people wanted to go somewhere. They wanted to do something. Yeah. And we said, sure, come on. So they came down. We met in the – we cleaned out one of the hoop houses. And we had this uh, this event. Of course, we were accused of having a super spreader event. And um, but I mean, people levitated. They were so happy. They left that and the lights went on in my head. I said, wow. Yeah. Are there other organizations that would like to get together who, who don't want to do it at a conference center that's going to, you know, stick a thermometer on everybody's forehead and, and, and yeah. require a mask and all that stuff? So we, we so so I put out some some little um, uh, dips in the water in the winter of 2020. 2020, 2021, and got several hits. So 2021, we did six of these, and they were fantastic. People loved it, but we did it in the hoop house, and in midsummer, we could not get it cool enough in there. It just, it just was too hot. So last year, we said, okay, we want to continue this, but we've got to have a, a cooler, a more attendee-friendly yeah. facility. So early this spring, we built the Lunatic Learning Center, which is a 300 to 400 seat, three three level outdoor amphitheater basically yeah and uh this year we did we did six uh six gatherings and uh this thing is just it allows us to to offer the farm and what we're learning is that our food is a real draw yeah uh, because you know we, we can cook for them so we can value out and that's the ultimate value add so we're you know we're, we're selling now you know we're selling uh whatever 10 to fifteen thousand covers and we don't even have a restaurant. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 10, 20,000 platefuls of food, and we don't yeah. even have, a, have a restaurant. So that, and that's pretty booked. There's yeah, no group show us. They may not show up. They've yeah. already paid. You know yeah, exactly right. how much. That's right. It, it's all it's all handled that way. And uh, so our, it, it's been so well received with numerous groups. So so we don't actually run them. I mean, in other words, we're offering an event space and food and smiling faces and hospitality. It's basically your gig. And of course, all those people, they they come and you know buy, you know, 10, 20,000 hours worth of stuff in the store, you know, everything from food to swag. And of course, then a lot of them now that we're shipping nationwide, they then, well, I want this sausage at home. So then, you know, now the next thing you know, here we're getting, you know, monthly orders to ship sausage uh, around. So it, it's a very symbiotic, a very yeah. symbiotic uh, arrangement. And um, and it's definitely become a profit center. We, we hope that within the next, you know, three to four years, that thing comes to where we're actually 
we're actually being able to pick and choose of all the groups that want to come, we 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 can now start to pick yeah. the ones that fit the best and work the best for us to work with. And drive the rest of the whole aspects to yeah. yes, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. They and, work and, the best. And, and I'll tell you, you know, what happens is a lot of times the real benefit of these things is not necessarily just the cash, which is nice, but it's also just the the awareness and collaboration. I mean, like, like, so I'll give you one in 2021. The first one that we had was uh, Holistic Hilda. She works with uh, Weston A. Price Foundation. Yep. And uh, she had Tom, Dr. Tom Cowan, who was one of the, he, he and Sally Fallon founded the Weston A. Price Foundation. Well, he'd never been here. Now we knew him, he and I knew each other. We'd done some things in the past. He'd never been here. We came here and he was totally, I mean, he was, he was blown away by yeah. what we do on the pastor and everything. And so when he left, he said, uh, you know, he, he's got a, he's got an online uh, vetted supplement service called Tom Cowan's garden. That, yeah. that it's one, it's one of his uh, income streams. He said, I don't sell any meat all there on there. Would you guys be willing to be my meat and poultry uh, supplier for Tom Cowan's garden? <laughs> we wow. said, wow. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, I think that would be fine. And so, we actually developed, I think, nine nine different uh, packages, uh, yep. and of course, he he sells them on his site as Tom Cowan's Garden, and then we we fulfill them and send them from here. So he's not he's not yep. inventorying; it's it's direct ship from here. So that was a partnership that that developed strictly from having these gatherings and and getting people here who see things, opportunity, their mind starts to think, our mind starts to think, and you just, you know, uh, this yeah. kind of thing, this kind of thing develops. Absolutely. So maybe share one thing that you thought was going to be a huge hit and it ended up being a dud for your value added. Well, one of the things that we, that we've really struggled with over the years is the spring surplus of eggs. Mm. And so we've actually tried everything from freezing to, you know, liquid eggs, and we haven't we haven't been able to punch through that. And we've tried to get our customers to you, you can freeze eggs. You can freeze eggs in like ice cube trays, you know, yeah. and, and and it'll work. But uh, we haven't been able to get haven't been able to get customers to do that. That's been a bit of a dud. I think the ability to get customers to I don't know what uh, jump off the cliff with you. It's really hard. Mm. I mean, you know, people are in their routines. They say they want to help, but, you know, help only goes so far. When I do marketing seminars, I say there's there's one thing that even your best customer will never forgive, and that is if you're out of product. And mm. so we actually spend more time, uh, we, we, we stockpile more hay than necessary because we can't say, oh, everybody, we had a drought this year. Sorry, you won't be able to get any beef for a year because we had to liquidate the herd. Uh, they will always go somewhere else. One big thing, we don't do any farmer's markets anymore. We've just found farmer's markets are just not a good, that's been a real dud for us. We have not broken through the farmer's market thing. It takes you away from the farm. It doesn't return a lot. It's it's like a patent place with you know, soap opera um, uh, going on. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of rules, uh, lots of bureaucrats walking around with thermometers and, 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 you know, yes, noses in the air. And, and frankly, I don't want to broad too, too broad a brush here, but 
what we found is that a lot of the people at farmers markets they're not actually buying groceries they're they're uh they're virtue signaling they're virtue signaling their local food uh oh i participated in a local yeah. food system and they're taking their grandkids to mcdonald's but they're getting a little you know little purple ribbon can pans of, of raspberry preserves and look i presented you know i i participated in the local food system yes. so we, we just found it in general the farmer's market is a very inefficient interface between the farmer and the customer yeah and yeah i always tell folks that far, farmers markets be a great way to get started but it's also a great way to then it's great to move away from that into your own sales systems yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i think i think you're right and now, now I have seen, I've done a lot of traveling. I have seen some farmers markets that really, really work. And I will tell you, there are, there are, I've got about, I've got about four or five things yep. that if it does this, it might be a good farmers market for you. One is it's got to be year round. People, people don't quit buying groceries in the winter. It's got to be year round. Number two, it's got to have a common cash register. So I've seen these. Uh, you know, imagine if when you went to Kroger's, if you had to, when you put yep. the jo Jolly Green Giant beans off the shelf, you had to pay Jolly Green Giant. And then when you went and you got the Tyson uh, chicken, you had to pay Tyson. It would be laborious. Well, that it's like farmer's markets are made to be laborious. And so a common cash register, and I've seen this work where you can go and shop. You actually have a shopping cart. You go and shop. And then every every farmer's stuff has their own little you know, mm. SKU number, SKU number on it. And there's a common cash register at the end, at the end, you know, you get all your money back and that allows farmers to interact and to do what they do very well and not have to transact money and, and, and actually, again, appear mercenary to themselves. And yeah. so a common cash register year round. Another one is to allow collaborative selling. So if three farmers live near each other, and want to go to the farmer's market, they should be able to collaborate, share a, share a space, and hopefully the, the one that's the, the talker schmoozer will be the one that goes and represents everybody. And um, maybe, the, maybe the other two guys stay home and go help that guy, that guy get his chores done when he has to leave and go to farmer's market. The mm -hmm. point is collaborative selling, this almost cultish, you know, producer only, uh, nobody can sell anybody else's stuff. It it actually creates great inefficiencies within the system. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a, that's a real problem. So yeah, there, there, there are things that can be done, I think, to make farmers markets really, really functional, including being inside and inside building, not outside so that people can leave their vendor booth up. They don't have to set it up and take it down every single week. Uh, you can go to the same one, you know, so those are, those are some benchmarks that if you're on a farmer's market committee that you, if you can start working toward those things, you will, you will revolutionize your market. Absolutely. Yeah. So Joel, you just mentioned you've been traveling, you travel a lot, um, sharing, you know, the regenerative kind of gospel as it were, what awesome, cool value added experiences slash products do you, have you come across? You're like, oh my gosh, that is just, that is something else. So I was just in uh, South Africa mm -hmm. and I was at a resort there. That's where I stay. That's where the farm conference was, where I, I did my seminar. So you have this resort, but then you have an adjacent farmland that supplies the resort with its uh, food. So they have a chef on site that mm. fixes the food that the farm, it's a 150 room facility. So it's not tiny, 
so they've got like uh, 19 egg mobiles and they've got, you know, pigs and cows and uh, a great big produce garden that a, that a subcontractor runs. And so it, it's quite a, it's quite a wonderful yeah. operation. All right. So we go over and they treat us to one of their picnics. So okay. they, have, they have this large area landscape. It's got a pond and some, you know, pretty rocks and, and just, you know, it's just pretty landscape with some picnic tables and stuff. And so you go to this window and you get a blanket. Okay. And you get a camping. I don't even know what you call. I've never seen this. I'm not a camper. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm sure campers would know what this is, but, but basically it, it's, it's a stacked, it's a stacked set of canisters that all nest a nice little handle goes over top. Yep. And you carry that out and you open it up. And each of these little canisters has, you know, something in it to eat. And so, so people come to this place and it's all just extremely attractive, good logos, great messaging. You get your blanket, you get your little picnic canister and, yeah. you, can get, and you can get, you know, meat, vegetarian, vegan, all right, D different kinds. And depending on how many people you have, you get one, two, or three, or however many of these, yeah. of these uh, canisters, and you go and you spread your blanket out in this pretty little area, and you have your picnic, and it's a great little uh, family thing. And I just I just was taken with that whole... Yeah. Uh, I mean, talk about, talk about the ultimate agri-infotainment um, uh, kind of thing. It was just... I did. I mean, I was the guest. They treated me. I have no idea what these things cost, but yeah. I'm, I'm sure they were not cheap. Yeah. And and, uh, and you know, there, there there was no there was no plastic, no waste, no packaging waste. Uh, your food was in these little stainless steel canisters, and you had your blanket. And of course, you you took all this back at the end. They washed the dishes. They they took the blanket. I mean, it was a wonderful way for a family to have a a nice little picnic. That is so cool. When I was in South Africa, I was on uh, I was on several nature preserves, okay. and um, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of that, of course, in South Africa. Had, you know, giraffes and warthogs and all that sort of thing. There's there's a lot of that going on. Probably some of the some of the things that have you know struck me as much as anything on on places I've been are just the innovative kind of child-friendly recreational opportunities. Here's the thing, as a value added, when you start talking about how do we get people out here? How do mm -hmm. we get people? Because here's the thing, when people come out, they want to spend money. I mean, they, they want to have a picnic. That you, know, How can you add that dimension to your thing? So one of the coolest things I ever saw was what uh, was a corn box at a, at a farm. Instead yeah. of a sandbox, they had this great big corn box and kids could play with their, you know, so kids could go out and play with Tonka trucks and, and all that in a corn. I mean, you could go to a sandbox any day, but, you know, not a corn box. So I came back, we duplicated that here, but we had a problem with rats and we could not get ahead of the rats. And so we finally now we've we've uh, converted to a pebble box. So it's got the little white round pebbles. Kids love that. It's it's still different than a sandbox, and it and it's you know it's clean, and uh, it's not quite as whatever exotic as a corn box. But but kids, I mean kids go out there. They can play for an hour there uh, without any trouble at all. And so uh, that's been really really good. I was just at a farm over the weekend actually. Okay. Where this is the second time I've seen this. 
where they had a surgical, uh, you know, a tubing, yeah. you know, flexible surgical tubing, and they made a a, a frame with a great big long uh, slingshot. Okay. So, uh, the, these folks were using apples. I've also seen little uh, pumpkins, but you know, you buy the apple for a buck or buy the pumpkin for a buck and kids, and they've got, they've got a target out there and you can take this thing and you can pull it back like, you know, eight feet and launch this thing yeah. 200 feet out through there. It's a, it's a great uh, slingshot for kids, fun for kids. One of the, one of the neatest ones I ever saw was uh, in, actually in Ohio and it was a farm that they took about a, a, a 20 foot by 20 foot and, and made a, a real hard packed gravel 20 foot by 20 foot area. Yeah. And they had gone and invested in pedal tractors. So they had okay. a pedal, a pedal John Deere, you know, it had red ones and blue ones and green ones and orange yeah. ones. And, you know, like half a dozen of these pedal tractors and, and kids could ride around on this, you know, hard packed 20 by 20 area. And again, Kids can, I mean, your mom and dad, you know, you're coming out to the farm. What you're wanting to do as a farmer, you're trying to create a place where every two weeks, those kids go to mom and dad and say, I want to go back to that place. I want to go back to that place. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're, that's what you're trying to, you know, to yeah. promote, to create. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, we, we now have this recreation area with, you know, teeter totters and a tire swing and, a, you know, you, you can make, you can make uh, living teepees where you grow Kentucky wonder beans up over a, yeah. Yeah. a, a lattice work. I mean, those are, you know, ho- little hobbit houses and things like that. In, in the Netherlands, I was at a child's playground where they had taken great big gnarly trees and set them up just for kids to crawl all over these trees. It was, I mean, it was the simplest thing in yeah. the world. But kids love that, you know, the natural branches and crotches and all this stuff. They didn't go very high, but it was not man-made. You know, you, you knew yeah. this, this is this is a natural tree here, and kids could, you know, kids could play in that. So yeah. there, there's no there's no end to the kind of things. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about, Michael, for years and, and haven't done, but we would love eventually to do what we what we would call a um, a polyface Olympics. Uh, where okay. uh, tap tap into the you know the fitness the fitness community yes uh, come out for a you know and you you carry five gallon buckets of water you gather eggs you toss a bale of hay you you know you do the kind of stuff that we do but turn right. it into you know like like uh, you know events in an Olympics mm-hmm. and um, and anyway at the end they get the golden pitchfork <laughs> yeah at the end they get the golden pitchfork once you start down this path of my my memories start to flood back there was a guy. I remember him. He was at an Acres USA conference and he was all down in the dumps. You know, he had three kids. He had this, this small farm. You know, what am I going to do to hold on to this farm? And um, the next year I saw him, he came and he was so upbeat and he was just bouncing off the wall. I said, what in the world happened? So in the, in the year intervening, uh, he'd gone to his kids said, you know, what do you think we could do here to add, add value? And mm-hmm. um, kids said, let's do a haunted farm for Halloween. Yeah. And so, so they, they just made a, made a course, got a hay wagon, you know, and people could come and take rides. And it's like, he told me, he, he said, in the daytime, it looks like the stupidest thing in the world, but at night it's totally different when you drive through some trees and some, and some, uh, some, you know, uh, plastic streamers come down and get wrapped around your head. You, ah, you yeah. know, and, and they had, they had like a guy, a guy that got a, a fluorescent um, a skeleton suit. Yeah, and got a chainsaw 
so they're, they're, you know, they're going through the edge of the woods and this guy jumps up. They got a light that shines on him and he looks like a skeleton and he's got a chainsaw and, 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 and there's no, there's no bar on it. It's just the, yeah. but yeah. it's running, you know, you can't, I mean, I mean, no, I'm sorry. It has the bar, but no chain. Yes. It has the yeah. Bar, yeah. No chain. So people think it's a chainsaw and he goes chasing people. They're terrified. You know, chainsaw yeah. massacre, but people yeah. loved it. And, and, and in, and in two weeks, in two weekends, they made like two hundred thousand yep. dollars in in two weekends. It was just it was yep. uh, magnificent. I ran to a guy in uh, in British Columbia. He had an old uh, bank barn. What am I going to do with this thing? You know, it's obsolete. And so he cleaned it all up and hung uh, four by eight sheets of plywood around, put track lighting in, and had an art show every year. And he works one month a year, takes in all of his income for the year in a month with with an art show in his barn. And he sells he sells all of his farm products, all of his chicken, all of his lamb, in a concession stand there uh, to the people that come to the art show. You know, so that that was really uh, yeah. really intriguing. Yeah. And then there was a family in uh, Indiana that uh, you know they were a regular commercial farm. Uh, what are we going to do? And they just couldn't think of anything. So they they decided to take this old barn and turn it into a miniature golf course. Okay. And yeah. I met them about three or four years after they started this. When they started it, it, it was like a 600 acre farm. It was a pretty good sized farm. Yeah. Nobody was making a living on it. Everybody was working in town. And literally four years later, I think it was seven, seven full-time, uh, full-time salaries to their family uh, through this thing. So the, the miniature golf course took off yeah. and, uh, and then, then they did a, a pumpkin patch. And then they started concessionizing. They started doing corporate retreats, and then they then they made four by eight miniature golf things that they could move around with a front end loader and, and set them up so so the course could be different outside. It, it is just just a wonderful wonderful story of of creativity. It, it, it it's it's infotainment. It's it's about yeah. uh, you know trying to uh, you know everything from mazes to whatever. I mean, another family they, they were doing a maze. And uh, see, people come out and, and do their maze. Well, half of the kid, kids that came were brought by their grandparents. Well, grandparents want to see their kids run through the maze. So the maze is, you know, whatever, five bucks. And so they built a set of bleachers next to it to get the grandparents and parents up high enough that they could video their kids in the maze. And every seat on the bleacher costs another $5. And so they doubled their income by getting the... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> getting the parents and the kids to go get up high enough to take pictures of the kids. Yes. Uh, yeah, this, this never ends. I mean, th this can just go on and on and on. But once yeah. you once you get into that mindset and start brainstorming, you know, there's no yeah. end to the kind of things that you can yeah. do to yeah. give people a good time. We just we uh we have a local farm we work with for our cider for our stand, and uh, I was talking to him about his biggest customers, his biggest customers are the two biggest agritainment places in the area. He said they oh. will take nine pallets of cider at a time a week. These it's, it's unbelievable. And again, I, you know, sometimes people talk about like, well, I just want to grow food and that's great. But I think the point of, like you said, having a place that you can get people to come, but then the concessions is your product. Because again, you're getting the maximum amount for your, of what you want but you're also creating this huge draw on your farm. One of the biggest 
question things we have joel is we're a produce farm we do produce we do value add with herbs and you know woody ornamentals and stuff like that with elderberries and we have you pick fruit and stuff but people say where i want to bring my kids out they see the animals so we're going to literally put animals on our farm literally just because people want to be attracted. People want to come to see that. And again, it's not like we're opposed to that, but with the small acreage we've got, it's tough for us to have, you know, scale enough to be producing all our own eggs, but it's the token aspect because there's so much education aspect there. And obviously there's huge advantages to having animals on any farm just because of the, sure. the fertility building. But yeah, it comes sure, back. Sure. To that. Yeah. So, so in that regard, Michael, uh, I'll give you a couple of ideas that people have, yeah. have, have told me. Uh, one, one guy had a little, a little chicken house. He put an outdoor platform. So okay. kids, because he didn't want the kids to go in with the chickens. I'm not opposed to it, but, but this yeah. particular guy didn't, uh, but, but what he did, he got one of these, uh, these wildlife feeders where you put a quarter in, get a little, get yeah. this little, uh, this little tiny, like a, like a little communion cup of, of yeah. corn. Yeah. Yes, and, uh, and put a PVC pipe down in there with a funnel on it on the end, and kids could pour that that little thing of corn down that PVC pipe. It'll go click 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 click. Well, the chickens learn pretty quickly. Oh, there's corn coming, and so so the children are watching the the chickens respond to their you know to their yep. corn going down, and oh you know, and, and it's it's just a wonderful thing. And he, he said he said I, I you know I buy corn for four bucks a bushel and sell it for thirty bucks a bushel through my you know through my thing. Yeah. But but mainly it's it's a child's entertainment thing to you know to watch the chickens uh, yeah. respond to them. Another guy, another guy had uh, he had a couple pigs in a lot, and he had some bamboo poles there with some uh, uh, baler twine hooked to them, and yeah. he had ear, ear corn, uh, ear ears of you know field corn. Yeah, yeah. He would tie that to the baler twine, let the kids stand up on a ramp and hog fish. They, they drop you know. Hog, those bamboo poles out over the pigs, pigs come along, you know, grab that, grab that ear yeah, corn, yeah. you know, and the kids say, I got one, I got a big one, you know, and, and there's this, this, uh, the, and they call it hog fishing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so those kinds of things can be done. Michael, what's your talk? There's a, there's a, a business book out. It's called selling. I think the title is selling the invisible, okay. selling invisible. And it's all about when you buy something, it's never the product that you're actually buying. It's it's the emotions around the product. Yeah. It's the it's the actual memory of yeah. of the product. And so when we when we start down this passage, we have to realize we're not just selling, you know, potatoes and 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 beef and chicken. Uh, mm -hmm. We're actually selling all the emotions that come around the memory yeah. of yeah. of of being immersed in that in that system. Yeah. I, I ran into a guy. He 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 went to the uh, he was at the. One of the one of the farmers markets in Chicago, and he figured out that he could double his egg sales at farmers market by instead of selling the eggs in in cartons, he he made two real cute little wooden nest boxes, and okay. he would put, he would put the dozen eggs in the nest box, and let kids come along gather their eggs and put them in the carton, and he doubled his egg sales because <laughs> the kids could gather their own eggs out of the out of the nest box. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mom can take a picture. Look, here's little Amy gathered the eggs out of the nest box. You know, yeah. market, and it creates buzz. And then everybody wants to come to his stand to get his eggs because we can gather our eggs there. Over here, it's just sterile in, in a box. I mean, yeah. it, does, it doesn't take much sometimes to move you from just that 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 commodity and just just you know, as we say, as farmers, you know, practical, the practicality of it to just add a little bit of memory zest to it yeah. To, yeah. to increase the value.
Absolutely. It's a story you're telling. It comes back yeah. to that. I mean, one of the things yeah. obviously you've done with Polyface is talk about the story of, you know, your parents starting with this basically eroded hard right. pan and, you know, the lushness of Polyface. I mean, I still remember the summer I was there, the mm -hmm. number of times we hayed that one field out back of the, um, the big field out back of the house, you know, go straight yeah. up the mountain there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Seven times, I think you guys cut hay off that. And it just blew my mind, just the regenerative aspect. And so right. telling that story, I think people resonate with that. And farmers need to realize you've got to figure your story and just tell that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And telling your story in a way that resonates with the customer. You know, in marketing, it's all about the customer, not about you. Uh -huh. And so every message you 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 tell, you need to tell it through the lens of serving that customer. I mean, uh, so if you're, you know, if you've got, if you've got weird genetic animals, well, tell it through that lens to the customer. How's that going to help them meet their needs? Because your customer wants to know uh, how, how is this going to help me? How's this going to make my life better? How's this going to make my child healthier? Those are the concerns that your customer have has. And, and I will, I'll confess to you, the hardest thing for me to do in marketing is to put myself in the shoes of my customer because we're so different. We're so different. I don't drive to work. I don't, you know, I, yeah. I eat out, I eat out of the garden, you know, I, you know, I, I'm so different. And so you almost have to go into a, you know, to a, a yoga pose and, and get into a meditative stance to be able to put yourself in your customer's shoes. Mm -hmm. What's, what's she thinking? What's she looking for? And, but boy, when you, when you nail that, that is a sweet place when you can nail that. Yeah. One of the most effective I've, things I've found, because you're right, I, get, I experienced the exact same um, paralysis of not knowing what they're thinking is I'll just go out to the bus and stand there and wait till, well, we have a, we have an on-farm bus. It's a whole yeah. host of reasons why we have yeah. that. But, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll just stand there and start chatting up with customers and say, uh -huh. okay, so why are you here today? What are you looking for? What's your, and that is where you get that stuff. And That's because right. they're going to say it to you. And the best yeah. aspect is that they don't know you're the owner. They think you're just some other person there. They are really free to say exactly what they yeah. think. Mm -hmm. So, um, right. but yeah, it works both ways, but yeah. absolutely. That's exactly right. So what's the future for value-added producers? And what do you feel like the future for farmers is right now? Where do we need to be looking? What do we need to be focusing on? Yeah, so we're in a really interesting spot here as efficiency has given way to resiliency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've been told forever, you got to get bigger, get out, you got to get efficient. And suddenly now we're real, uh, the, the, the greater, you know, the greater culture is realizing, well, if, it, if, if at first we're not resilient, there's nothing to be efficient about. Mm -hmm. And so at first we have to be resilient. And so when we look at resilience, one of the principles is you have to be nimble. You know, there's a, there's a business book out. It's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. Mm. And so when we're nimble, we can navigate dysfunctional waters. And so what we have now are some really troubled waters in the food farm space, you know, from increased fertilizer prices to supply chain issues to uh, geopolitical issues with China and, and, and everything else. And so the idea here of being a, a speedboat rather than an aircraft carrier, I feel like my sense is that the time has come for the speedboat. And so, so here we are. As so, where does the what what does that portend for the future? Well, I've never been more optimistic about the potential for the future because COVID put another nail in the coffin of people who believe the orthodoxy, and so the the orthodox message 
is now more questioned than it's ever been. And so, so trust factor uh, drops off. And so we as small direct marketing farmers, we actually have a, a pretty a pretty high trust factor. In other words, if, if you asked, if you did a poll, a survey of people, and you had a bunch of vocations, who do you trust? Tr- believe me, the small farmer at the farmer's market would be way, way high, a- as opposed to, for example, uh, a senator, okay? Yes. And so we are in a place right now in our niche in the culture to capitalize on a tipping point of trust as trust moves from big to small, as trust moves from far to near, as trust moves from bureaucratic licenses to relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I am very, very bullish about what this portends for us going forward. Uh, we're, we're just seeing more and more interest every day and, and the, the whole interest in the microbiome, the health and wellness community. The more we find out about nutrition, the cheaper testing becomes. I mean, the Bionutrient Food Association is, is just leading the way with this uh, little you know, gizmo that can, that can read you know, nutritional components in foods. And so that whole testing procedure is coming easier. And so I think that authenticity is going to, it's just coming yeah. more into the culture. And we get to, you know, we get to enjoy that. And so I've never felt more you know, excited or optimistic about the demand and the desire you know, for, our, for our food and, and a general cultural mistrust of our competition, you know, from mm-hmm. Monsanto to Tyson to, to mm-hmm. the USDA to FDA, yeah. uh, there's just growing mistrust of all of that messaging and orthodoxy. And I don't even have to ride that horse. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's being ridden just by their own you can stop talking about it because the news is now talking about yeah, it. It's, yeah. it's so bad. That, that's right. That's right. So yeah. now we we can be positive and offer yeah. the positive alternative without having to denigrate the uh, denigrate the competition. Yeah, absolutely. What encouragement do you have for someone who wants to you know step out, start you know adding income to their farm, doing something different, but they're not quite sure what's the first step? My biggest piece of advice there is to start with one. I think too many people, and I don't want to marginalize business plans because I think it's sometimes it's important to put together a business plan. But one of the problems with business plans is that we start looking too far down the road. And I'm well, to make this work, I need a thousand customers or you know, whatever. All right. And and it's too far down the road. Think about hobbies, think about interests that you have. A lot of times entrepreneurial things come out of hobbies. Do you like to cook? Do you like to do woodwork? Do you like to, you know, whatever, grow weird looking potatoes, you know, whatever. But but think about think about something that's a, a personal heart interest to you, uh, that's something that you're interested in, and then do one. Take it to one person and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Is this, this something you'd be interested in? And number two will come. And number three will be easier. Number four. But if you start with, well, boy, you know, if, if I can't figure out how to have 500 customers, you know, it's just not going to work. You, you will never get out of the box. Mm. So so I encourage folks to start start with one, start with something you love, and don't worry about the 50, the 60, the 100, the 80. Just, just go with one, and you'll learn so much that the second one will be easier, the third one will be easier, and you just, you just go right on. Mm. Mm. That's such good advice. 
Joel, would you like to leave us with like, you're the first session in this online conference. We have over 37 speakers, which just blows my mind. But would you like to give folks like a, a blessing or a charge as they spend the next three days learning? <laughs> sure, sure. So my my uh, my blessing that I do all the time when I speak, I'm known as the, so, so may your carrots grow long and straight. Uh, may your radishes be large, but not pithy. May tomato blossom and rot affect your Monsanto neighbor's tomatoes. May, <laughs> may, the, may the coyotes be struck blind at your pastured chickens. And may all of your culinary experiments be delectably palatable. May the rain fall gently on your fields. The wind be always at your back. Your children rise and call you blessed. And may we all make our nest a better place than we inherited. Thanks for letting me visit with you. It's been a delight. And I wish you very well on the rest of the summit. Thanks to Harvest Host for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Harvest Host provides a cost-free opportunity for small businesses and farms to increase revenue simply by inviting self-contained RV members to stay one night on their property. In return, members patronize or donate to the business. Well-established hosts are reporting on an average of 15000 in annual additional revenue. For more information on how you can become a host or a member, contact Harvest Hosts today at harvesthosts.com. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.